Hi, everybody, and welcome to Pod Be With You this week. We've got two Bible stories and two themes, as we said earlier. Light and breezy themes. Oh, easy. Yeah, just not simple, yeah. quick. We'll have you out of here in seven, eight minutes, maybe, with commercials. <laughs> with commercials, yeah. Yeah, we were, we were just laughing because both of us have sort of engaged in seriously... Um, uh, significant stuff in in what we've chosen to preach on this yeah. week. You know, also great to do that on a, like a communion Sunday when you know you have a shorter amount of time in That's which it. to preach too. Yeah, yeah, perfect. just buckle up. Yeah, right. Yeah, both on Sunday and here, where you're going to get everything that we have to cut out on Sunday, but <laughs> but feel compelled to mention. Yes. So here, no, actually, it shouldn't be too bad. Why don't you start? As you said, you're in John 3. Yeah. Oh, just John 3. Just John 3. It's, it's, it's straightforward. It's just yeah, the story of Nicodemus. It just has the most famous verse of all time in the midst of it, for God so loved the world, right? Mm-hmm. No big deal. No um, references, no allusions. Nothing Nothing there that, that um, and it's not like it's John who uses language that has layer upon layer of meaning and symbolism so it's no big deal um so this is a minute full of sarcasm to start it that's is. a new wow, record that's personal a, best yeah for a podcast i think that should be our new theme as we as we enter into kind of a new season of the pod is sarcasm i like um, it i like it too as a holy discipline yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's holy discipline. well i hope it is because we do it enough yeah so i'm wrapping up uh i'm wrapping up the summer series it's labor day weekend and and we're kind of coming to a close of what we've been doing the 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 sunday funnies and I started the whole season with a Calvin and Hobbes, and we're going to end with a Calvin and Hobbes. You can't go wrong. You can't, right? It's the perfect bookend. Um, and uh, this one is, is a classic about the transmogrifier, you know? So Calvin has this big box, yep. right, where he, he writes on the side different things. This one has something like a dinosaur and a giant bug and a walrus, right? And you sort can, of dial-ish that you can yeah, put on yeah. there and you select what you turn into and in this cardboard of, box. Yeah, I and you can, love it. And so that he's talking about that with Hobbes and Hobbes says to him, well, what if I want to transform into something else? And Calvin says, well, I left room right here. You can write it in. <laughs> so... <laughs> Do love it. It's it is brilliant. great stuff. And so I wanted to talk in this last sermon of the series a little bit about transformation because that is something that I think is at the heart and soul of what it means to be engaged in a life of faith. Yes. Um, this understanding that we can be transformed and moved from where we were to something different. Different, and not only that, that we also have the capacity to help transform the world. Um, and so, I think uh, those are the two elements, if I may say, knowing you, though, that's also at the heart of how you understand salvation, right? Yeah. Less about I said the right code word, now I'm in salvation being about going to heaven versus going to hell, right? Salvation is about being changed, about being transformed, about exactly. growing, about um, as you said, being brought from one place to another place, yeah. And, and yet it is, so you could make a case that it's the, the goal of our faith. Yeah. The core. Yeah. The core piece. And Um, yet transformation or just call it more plainly change. Right. Can be one of the most difficult things in all of life to encounter and consider. It's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many sticking points and uh, and painful seasons and uh, and those things that get in the way and want to kind of cause barriers to our ability to really change. Um, 
most of which we erect ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, that said, I, I have um, included in the scripture for this Sunday and the folks who were doing the bulletin and the slides for me this week were like, really? 21 verses? Thanks. <laughs> um, but it is the story of Jesus's visit with Nicodemus. And I wanted to include the whole of it, the whole pericope, again, another great word, um, because it I'm is... Still early. I'm just back two weeks. You yeah, gotta, let me ease down. into this, please. Then <laughs> uh, I, won't, I won't pull out the word sanctification, which is another great word for that transformation change. But, well, yeah. Mm. Oh, I just did it. Mm. We can take, we'll take it out in post. We'll take it out in post. So I'm not going to read 21 verses for you today. You guys can do that if you have the desire to go back in. It's John 3, 1 through 21. Um, and the reason I wanted to include it is because all of it is connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and to leave out part of it seems like you're leaving out something significant. Uh, because you are. Because you are. Yeah. By, by, by definition, these things go together. It's one of the most beautiful passages of Jesus, sort of this extended self-disclosure, this yeah. extended mission statement. This is Jesus in one of his most poignant and beautiful ways saying who he is, who he understands himself to be, at least in the words of the author of the gospel of John, how, you know, that author renders it, but still that that's some of the most beautiful and direct and loving ways that Jesus talks about how he understands why he is here and what he is here to do. Exactly. It was, it was Martin Luther who famously said that John three 16 is the gospel in a nutshell Mm -hmm. in which it encompasses Jesus's ability to reveal the love of God for the world um, in a really powerful way. Multiple things I want to say here. Uh, This is going to make the sermon. This is not cutting floor stuff. Uh, John uses the word the world, Greek cosmos. Mm -hmm. um, And when he uses it, he um, usually means it to mean something like those people who have enmity toward God. Mm. So, Which is be like this. Don't I do not give as the world gives. Right. Give as, or I don't love as the world loves. Right. I did, it set up as a contrast to the godly way. Yes. Exactly. Right. And, and it's to exactly those people, which we should read is us, hmm. that that the love of God is coming. That it's this, this sort of expansive big thing that has the ability to change the way we live. Um, I also love the, the language that um, Jesus uses in here. Um, about being born from above, born from a new, and the spirit. Because the the word spirit here, uh, when he's talking to Nicodemus, right, you have to be born of the water and spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Spirit is another one of those dual meaning words in Greek that means spirit, but also wind. And so it takes me... And breath. And breath. And it takes me back to the beginning and the story of Genesis, where the spirit, the breath, the wind of God, again, another great Hebrew word that has multiple meanings, hovered over the waters of creation and brought forth everything. So... With that, the richness of that ambiguity. Yes. Does it mean spirit or breath or wind? And the answer is yes. Yes, exactly. And I think that Jesus is specific specifically and meaningfully recalling that, or the Mm -hmm. author of John is recalling that in Jesus's words, to be able to say, what I am offering you is recreation, that that you can turn into something different than you are right now, and that is hinged on the love that I'm offering. So um, 
Yeah. And he I, purposefully plays with this misunderstanding. I mean, he does. famously. Yeah. Nicodemus famously misunderstands. Right. Jesus says, be born again above. Jesus means above. Nicodemus hears again. Uh, hears again. Right. And says, how is that possible? Um, it is interesting for all of its, you know, merits, but the way that phrase born again and being a born again Christian. Yeah. Uh, how popular that has become and the irony of that, not, you know, all the rest of this aside, the irony of that in the reading is that that is actually, that's the misunderstood portion. Exactly. Like born from above is the one Jesus means. Mm -hmm. And yet we've taken on the born again. That's, that's what Nicodemus famously misunderstands it to mean. And yet that's the one that's that's taken off. And again, that there's a, finality about that kind of language Mm. uh, that I think Jesus is absolutely saying, no, that's not how it goes. Um, Those who kind of understand what it means to be born again in that particular way, often, like you said, it's transactional. Mm. I have this belief, therefore I am saved, Mm. Mm -hmm. right? And I think Jesus is talking about something, again, that has this sort of ongoing power in our lives to draw us forward. Um, and there is not a, a one and done moment where, okay, I've laid my money down. I've bought it. I'm good. Mm. Yeah. I've come up with the right code word and now I'm in. Exactly. Uh, And not to listen, I don't want to diminish the many people whose experience of being born again, about having a second chance, about being (sighs) lost and then found, about being dead and then rising, about having the sense of having a whole second chance at life and being born again, how powerful and important that recreation is. So I'm not knocking, and I know you're not either, the born again itself. And yet, um, when Jesus talks about being born from above, it is to say, yes, you have already been physically born, but not everyone has had a spiritual birth or a spiritual reawakening or rebirth or whatever, right? There is the sense of, and then the stuff that is from above, which is Jesus' way of talking about where God is, right? The the dimension of reality, the dimension of existence beyond this. Um, You can be, there is more to this life than the physical life you know. You can be born also from above, like in addition to this. And it can be as different your life can be as different from how it is now as the difference between being in the womb and then being born. Exactly. Exactly. And, okay, so. So Like we said, there's almost nothing. There's nothing here here to really talk about. But we should say this is Nicodemus's first time with Jesus. He shows up three times in in the Gospel of John. Um, In John 7, he shows up to sort of defend Jesus who is being uh, uh, accused by the Pharisees. Uh, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. and By the religious council, the yeah, Sanhedrin, right? The yeah. Sanhedrin, the people that, that you know. And, and it's interesting that when Nicodemus first comes to Jesus, he comes at night, right? Mm-hmm. So he's kind of under the cloak of darkness. But he uses the word we. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. So he's clearly speaking on behalf of a group within the Pharisees, within the Sanhedrin, that are kind of intrigued by this Jesus character. Yeah, and I know I know this is projecting, but it, f- it feels and reads for all the world like 
that council is having <laughs> internal conversations where uh-huh. they know it's real, but they can't be publicly seen right. supporting him. Or the, so they send one guy out yeah. to say, "Would you find what out you more? Found- just go, just go check this out for yeah. us." Um, but don't be in, seen doing yeah, it. Yeah, put your feet in the water and see yeah. what, you, you, what, yeah, what the temperature's like. But so in the, in seven, he defends Jesus, mm-hmm. um, and then at the end of the Gospel of John, he's actually one of the people who comes. And takes Jesus's body off the cross and, and prepares, prepares it for, for burial yeah. with all of the spices. And so we see a transformation in him from somebody who comes under the cloak of night because he doesn't want anybody to know what's going on. And of course, John has all of this language throughout about the light and the darkness and where we reside and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So that is not a mistake. And famously, Nicodemus in the middle of the night. Uh, doesn't he misunderstands? He doesn't get what he came for. He leaves unenlightened. Whereas the woman that Jesus meets in the middle of the day yeah. at noontime leaves enlightened. Enlightened, right? So, I, but there's this, yeah. So there's this transformation that occurs within Nicodemus, and we don't see exactly how it plays out, but something occurs. Um, and I also, I also really like this language that at the beginning, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. And Jesus says to him, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. So Nicodemus is saying, you come from above. You come from the very presence of the divine. We have this sense that this is true. And Jesus sort of sidesteps that question and instead opens it up much bigger to say, we can all be in the presence of God, right? The above is not the the only place where God resides and we can all be in the presence of God like I'm in the presence yeah, of God. Yeah, that one place up in the sky we get to go someday. Yeah, it's it's it, among us. Yes. Um, and so, uh, again, that, that language is really powerful. And this is the only place in the Gospel of John where Jesus uses the word kingdom of God, mm. which is interesting. But he he's very clearly kind of saying the kingdom of God is in our midst choose into it Mm. right the love of god is there opt in and um and every day it's it's the choice of waking up and walking in the light Mm. and um and transformation again then is something that occurs over time and we don't necessarily know we're going to end up the wind blows he talks about nobody knows where the wind blows right the spirit and if we follow the spirit we don't know where it's going to take us it can be very frightening um but it can also be the beginning of something fantastic and new and and excuse me energizing so Mm -hmm. um so there's a yeah there's a lot going on here i don't necessarily want to monopolize the whole time oh no not at all but when we speak about transformation there is there can be intentionality. And in some, some people would argue that there must be intentionality to oh, change. Yeah. In, in other times, though, it feels like we are changed whether we like it or not. We yes. wake up changed and we don't exactly know why. Right. Sometimes we would like to change and can't. Sometimes we don't want to change but do. Uh, and sometimes we try to change and we do. And then... Sometimes we try to change and it hasn't worked the last 17 times. And then some, and this time it does. Right. In ways that we don't know why we're just ready for it. Yeah. There are, and so it is this tension, I feel, this transformation. 
because it includes things, let's just put it bluntly, like things we can control yep. and things we can't control. Yep. And there's always this combination of then, well, where's the agency? Where does the responsibility lie? Um, is Am I waiting for God to change me? Yes. Or if I am changing, do I, am I called to change actively? Or am I just butting my head up against the wall and I need to be uh, a little bit more patient and trusting? Exactly. Uh, the answer is yes. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, with John, most often the answer is going to be that mm-hmm. broad. Yes, it is all of these things. It, this reminds me of the conversation that theologians like to have about um, the the differentiation in the gospel and in the epistles between grace and works. That is how they talk. As That's a if, good impression. Thank you. I, I try really yeah. hard. Um Trying to do my impression of a middle-aged white guy in a tie. We were just talking. We were just using that language. So anyway, um, uh, as if there is some kind of huge demarcation Mm. between the grace of God, that love that is showered upon us, and our choice to... Our response. Our response. And I think... I understand why the reformers did what they did and leaned into grace in a really powerful sort of way. And I do too. An incredibly important theological corrective at the time, right? Yes. And still is. There are, there are definitely times when I am abundantly aware that grace is, is the thing that I'm hanging my hat on because that's all there is. But there's also this understanding that grace calls out in us some kind of response. And that response also has something to say about where we go and how we do it. And those things work hand in hand. Mm. And I think that you put your finger right on it because those things work together in transformation. There are times in which we can do nothing and we must wait for God to to do the work within us. God, the universe, time, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. There are other call times... Call it anything but fate because I can't do that. I can't. But... No, I can't call it fate. Um, but there are other times when we actually have the ability and the responsibility to do some of that. And those things work together in really mysterious ways. Mm. Uh, and I think that that is absolutely... Because sometimes it's real hard work, struggle, daily grind to get to a different place. And sometimes it is graceful and natural and, to use a buzzword, organic. And other times it is instantaneous, like like a flash of inspiration or epiphany, a a realization, a, well, now I'm different. Like from one moment to the next, I am now different. Yeah. Uh, And... Again, we don't know exactly how all those will, but it does matter that we respond, as you said. It does mean it matter that we actively participate, or if we find ourselves in a position where we are changed for the better, whether we know exactly how or exactly why or who did it and who's responsible. What is it us? Was it God? Was it the, our circumstances? What that we still then lean into that. Then we right. we don't waste that. That right. we that we really. Um, live into that right which is the other the other part one other part i should say of this gospel passage the part of the john 316 is that whoever for god so loved the world he said only son so that whoever believes in him may not that word belief is of course not belief nope the word is faith (laughs) yep but we don't have a verb for faith so we can't say, we can't render this in English, whoever faiths in him, <laughs> excuse me, um, shall not perish. 
but belief can be so narrow. And I think yeah. it can sound like this intellectual assent to an idea. Well, I just believe it. I believe it really hard. Yeah. Right? And these things overlap. Belief and faith. Absolutely. Uh, if you Venn diagrammed these, there would be some overlap. <laughs> But not all belief is faith and not all faith is belief. Right. And rendering this as belief can can make it, in my experience, too narrow. That what we're called is to just believe in something really hard. When faith, to me, sounds more, if you'll pardon, again, the cliche, holistic. Right. In the sense yeah. that it, it, it asks more of us. Yeah. It is not just about thinking about it and say, well, I think about it, I agree, now I'm done. Um, there's a great phrase that I've heard recently that goes something like knowing makes no difference, right? This idea that it is not just enough to know. It's not enough to agree that Jesus is this and to know it or to know that this is the right thing or to know that we need to change or to know what would be better or whatever, right? Or to know that this is how it works. Knowing all of that, knowing makes no difference unless we are able to apply it. Unless yeah. it is able to change how we live, how we feel, how we interact, how we experience life, right? Until that knowing can translate into transformation, knowing makes no difference. Yeah. But how many of us, how easy is it to get stuck in the knowing? Yeah. Right? To say, well, I know it. I must be halfway there just in the knowing of it. Yeah. And the fact is knowing is can be valuable. It can also be worth a lot less sometimes than we can than we can think it is and it can also be one of the obstacles sometimes yes uh ironically hmm. uh, and so uh what we think we know and what we do know can sometimes stand in the way of what is actually happening and and the transformation that is taking place so i i, I like that phrase i also wanted to point out that in that verse john 3 16 mm-hmm. belief is a word that is translated often difficultly because we don't have a faithing verb mm-hmm. the other thing that there mm-hmm. is there eternal life is also a thing that doesn't get translated yes. as exactly as it really is meant to be eternal life makes it sound like it's something temporal in another world and really it's more about authentic authentic life real mm. life living life i don't i don't know how to how to do that because whole life yeah yeah um in yes. the now yeah. uh, jesus is not talking just about some other world and it'll all be okay when we get there jesus is talking about how we can live now well eternal life really does sound to our linear minds our yep. western thought like you live forever yeah it sounds like immortality yeah right it sounds like i will live and it won't stop. It'll stretch out in a line forever. Right. That's And it will go eternally. At, Which, by the way, is a terrifying <laughs> thought. Just anyway, just that, needed to throw that out there. Let's let's not let's take it one existential crisis at a time. Okay. This morning. All right. <laughs> but but you're right that <laughs> that it is about expansion in all directions, about depth mm-hmm. and height and and breadth and richness of life not just length exactly of life right and it's not you know this is our monthly reminder that jesus did not think about or talk about heaven and hell the way we often talk about heaven and hell it was not the paradise versus the punishment as places you go when you die that wasn't jesus conception of how it worked jesus wasn't concerned with the afterlife no 
Uh, so we later, anachronistically, ooh, I'm warming back up. Uh, you are, yeah. right? Nice. We project <laughs> those conceptions of heaven and hell back onto what Jesus says. And we hear in this then that Jesus says we're going to live forever in heaven if we do it right. Yeah. But in the moment, Jesus wasn't talking about that. He couldn't have been talking about that. He was talking about, and he wasn't even talking about eternal life, as you said, stretching on forever. He wasn't talking about immortality. He was talking about an expansion, fullness yes. of life. Richness. Now. Yeah. Living with God now. Because Again, it's connected. That presence. To, yes, because it's connected to the spiritual yep. birth. The being born of above gives you a life that is that is uh, expansive, immense, rich, all those things we had said, not just someday you'll live forever. In fact, not that at all when Jesus was talking about it. Yep. So there's a couple of things to talk about in that. You were right. There's just a couple. And we also have a baptism on Mm. on this Sunday. So I have all the time in the world. Oh, let's get into baptism. Yeah. Let's not. (laughs) Well, but... But what do, you know, that's always a question about baptism and a fascinating one. What do we think we're doing? We're doing when we... What's the nature of a sacrament? What Does anything change with baptism? And if so, what? what? And to whom? Yeah. My, I continue to believe that personally, at this point in my journey, that nothing changes regarding the if this is an infant baptism which i'm assuming it is yes yes uh it nothing changes with that infant nothing changes for as far as i understand it in terms of that infant's relationship to god nope you know who's changed every we are right everybody who is participating in that sacramental act of naming and blessing and just stopping and noticing yep uh we are changed in that we are brought God isn't brought to us. We are brought to where God is. Yeah. And that's a that's a transformation. Yeah. So it's going to be a good day. That sounds like a good I day. I know. It's going to Baptism be... and communion. Yeah. Two and se- a 37-minute sermon. And I a 37, mean... yeah. <laughs> Whew. It's going to be great. So what are you diving into? Well, I'm... I confess to not being sure exactly, but I know that I really Isn't was. Isn't that what we were just talking about? Yeah, actually? it really is. I, you would have thought I would have figured it out in the last 25 minutes, but I haven't. Um, I was really moved last weekend. Uh, my wife, Andrea, and I sing with a professional singing group called the St. Charles Singers. And as part of a project over a decade, 17 different concerts, I believe, over a project in which this group would record all of Mozart's sacred choral works, which to our knowledge has never been done. Um, to have one group with an orchestra record all of, like wow. the complete, you know, the complete canon yeah. of this, right? Anyway, the culmination of that was this last weekend, and we ended with Mozart's Requiem Mass. Um, it, if you don't know it, you probably do. Right. If, if we played different parts of it, it's one of the most famous pieces of music in history, in part, I think, because it comes with its own intrigue and its own mythology and in its own. It, it is perhaps most famous, not just for the extraordinary music, but because it was unfinished. Mm-hmm. It was the piece of music Mozart was working on as he died. And I don't mean like when he died. I mean, literally as he died. And it ended up being a, a requiem mass that was part of his own mass, part of his own uh, funeral, mm-hmm. right? And which that's a whole other story. 
you know, to, to compose music for your own funeral, right? Um, there are all sorts of, like, maybe you've seen the movie Amadeus. I mean, there's all sorts of mo- legends and stories and fill in the gaps about it. But the bottom line is uh, Mozart didn't complete this. He left notes and sketches and incomplete renderings of some of the other pieces that were then later filled in by his contemporaries uh, to complete it, right? Um, and to his, one of the things that does seem to be true of all the legends about it is that uh, Mozart's wife's sister, who was at his deathbed when he died, uh, says that the last thing, or what Mozart was doing as he died, was trying to mouth out and sound out the timpani parts for the unfinished portions of the Requiem. He literally died composing this, trying to get those ideas out there, trying to finish it. And I feel like there is something certainly poignant about it. I think that can be felt rather tragically. Uh, I also think there's a way to read that rather hopefully. Mm -hmm. There is this sort of striving to the very end for what he loved and believed in and felt he needed to do. And then in I was moved by this image, right? And then being able to participate in, in performing that work, which is extraordinary. Um, there are so many places in our scripture, so many examples of those who are doing great things who cannot quite complete them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then I you pull on that thread a little bit farther and you say... Well, none of us actually complete. What a great illusion, actually, that we're living under, this idea that we can wrap everything up in this life and be done, when I really hope someday that I'm working on things that I won't live to see finished. Yeah. All of us should be working on things that we don't live to see finished. And I don't necessarily mean a bucket list, and I don't mean you know, the projects around the house or, you know, everybody get your will done, do your arrangements, like button things up. But we should all be investing in things that are multi-generational efforts that are, we should all be, you know, there was the cliche about um, faith looks like planting an acorn on your 90th birthday or something, right? It's this idea that you are planting a tree that you will never live to see Mm -hmm. mature because you, someone planted one before your lifetime that you lived to that and then it was a tree that you lived with there's this sense of and it will outlive you we should all have dreams that outlive us we should all have aspirations and uh, that that outlive us otherwise the alternative is so small this idea that we are just done well better not start anything better not do anything but also uh, anyway just that we shouldn't also necessarily expect that we are owed, that we get to do everything we want. I think, and I think that's important, uh, an important piece of that. I think uh, we as humans do get trapped in this, this, this bubble of thought that we are, we are owed this, that our, Mm. that, that our lives are about us and us alone um, and not engaged in those generations that follow. I think specifically of the church, right? Mm. And those churches that 
think this is about us and what we're doing right now, right here, and don't have that vision to realize that it's actually generations that are following mm -hmm. that are going to be the recipients of the work that we do now. And yeah, this is perfect. And there are so many examples of this in, in our scriptures. Man, yes. It's everyone. It's, it's, it's Moses. It's David who wanted to build a temple and was mm. told, no, that's not yours to do. Mm. Uh, that's going to be lifetime. not in your lifetime. It'll happen, but it's not you. Uh, uh, wow. Moses bringing the people of Israel. He wants to bring them to the promised land. I feel like he probably felt like he was promised yep. that he would be the one who gets, and he's not. No. He looks over and he sees it. And, but he's not going to make it there with them. Yeah. And he dies on the outskirts of the promised land. Yeah. Uh, this is Paul famously, I've fought the good fight. I've run the race. I've, and, and I think processing his own sense of no regrets. I have in the, I, I am, I think you can, one can feel that sense of completeness in the sense of I'm at peace with what I've done, right. but you can't tell me that there were other things left undone. And we know that there were, when Paul died, there were so many things, he, relationships he was still working on, yeah. dreams he had, uh, churches he would have planted and found, and yet what he did invest in did outlive him. Uh, we go back to this sense of that we get stuck as individuals as being owed this particular life experience. Without getting too far down that rabbit hole, I think one of the big differences is that in our culture, too often the cellular unit, the most important thing about this, the focus of our society tends to be the self-actualized individual. Right. Everything is about me and my life and what I do with my life and whether I meet my goals, whether I become my best self. And then success or failure, however you want to define those, you know, becomes, they become, uh, thought about in terms of the individual did this person what did this person do what did this person uh succeed with or right. what, do or not do right and i think what i hear you saying is that if we were able to take a far more communal approach to what we were doing mm -hmm. and how we were living and where we saw value we would know that we would be much more caught in the in the the flow of life and death yeah. and those who lived to make the world we got to live in and we are making a world that others will live in before, you know after yeah. us that we this is all a living thing that we get to participate in for a time yeah right yeah and yeah and it will all outlive us yep right every good thing we're working on over millennia it, it will outlive us. It isn't that good news. It has I, to be. It has right? to be. It has to be. Um, and so such a, I think, I don't know, uh, um, spoiler alert, I wasn't there at Mozart's bedside. Are you sure? At his death. I'm not totally sure, but I'm not ready to commit on okay. record Okay, all yet. right, all right. And I, but I think there's two ways to read it, um, at least, that we can project onto it. One, as I said, is somewhat tragic. Here is this man running out of time, desperately flailing, trying to get something out and failing. Yeah. It's also someone, or you could see it perhaps as someone who was extraordinarily gifted, not wanting to waste a second of his yeah. life doing what he loved to do, what he was compelled to do. Yeah. And... 
uh, and just never wanting to be done. Yeah. I'm going to use every drop of this life trying to do what I feel called to do. Yeah. I feel like those two things could both be true. Yeah. Even at the same time. But I feel like how you render that says a lot. Mm -hmm. And the second one obviously sounds a lot more hopeful to me. If we could approach our life as this all of the time we have with it is a gift. And we are going to faithfully and generously give of that life to many things that we ourselves will not reap the benefit of directly. Yeah. Right? But we will keep we will keep going as long as we can. Yeah. Right? This is this is the very uh <laughs> it, it, it it just seems to me uh that this is the very heart again of of the uh faithful life. Mm. Um, especially uh in, in my experience because I am uh, a Christian and and have a little bit of understanding about our Hebrew brothers and sisters because of the Hebrew Bible. This is the heart of Shalom. This is the heart mm-hmm. of the kingdom of God. That understanding that these are things that are going to outlive us and they should outlive us. And yet we have a place in them mm. and there is something that we are called to do. So, you know, I have this I'm reminiscing of of the story of Jesus breathing on the disciples, the Holy Spirit, Mm. and basically saying to them, uh, my my work here is coming to an end, but but not really because it goes on in you. Here's another even Jesus moment. Yes. (laughs) Right? Even Jesus, which we say, even Jesus didn't complete his mission, quote unquote, however you would define that. Even Jesus had unfinished business. Right. And he had a ministry to complete. He had a ministry that outlived him in, you know, it. spoiler alert uh, for a minute, right? Um, but even then <laughs> that he would pass on to others that would carry it forward for him. So, yeah, even Jesus, again, yeah. wasn't done. No. That, that, that the love that inspired him, the the work to which he was called, others picked it up and... And and moved it right. Yeah. He 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 didn't finish it in no. his lifetime. No, that that'll that'll preach. I I sure hope so. Yeah, that's but we've fantastic. got communion, so I've got an excuse to preach short if it doesn't. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which communion is an interesting thing. Um, I, we didn't talk about this ahead of time. I know I've talked with some different clergy. I know I talked with our worship team here, and how we'll just say uh, in disclosure. I think clergy everywhere are struggling with, congregations are struggling everywhere with how best to do communion now. Oh, yeah. Because we are not post-pandemic, right? And we will, in that sense, maybe never be post-pandemic, whether it is this or it's another thing. Or we may not, we may be post the worst of COVID threats, but it's still an extraordinary threat to a lot of different people. And it's now in the mix with cold and flu and everything else we've got folks hospitalized with pneumonia and all this this is happening all the time so even if we're post worst of the pandemic and the limitations i think many people are and thank goodness we're not post pandemic insight and awareness and we're not we're not post pandemic uh learning how to live differently right and some of how we did communion was gross and I loved it though. I loved it. I know, it too. I know. Yeah, but we can't go back. Not and not immediately and not in that way. My guess is what we many churches will do, because many people are in different places, is do communion a few different ways on yeah. any given sense. So people can participate 
the way that it's best for them for whatever reason. Yeah. But our hearts are, you know, pastor hearts are aching oh, to, yeah. to have that be more pastoral, more sacramental, not just everybody more grab your old thing, go to your seat or yeah. unseal your communion thing and but take that, it that, together. That face-to-face mm. moment uh in, We're talking about intention in t- or even passing the even plates the passing person the pl- yeah. to person. It's so special to us. And yet it's one person coughs on the bread as they pass it around. And it's one person dips their grubby fingers you know, in the cup. You yep. know, it's a kid who just had his fingers in his nose and then dips it into the cup. It's like we can't we can't do it. Or at no. least we can't do it and expect everyone to be, to in be that able place to do it. That to way. Do it right. Yeah. So um we didn't talk about this. You don't have to go on record. I just know that there's a lot of if you're you, dear listener, are, are thinking about this too uh, or wondering how it's going to go. Just know that we're really thinking about it very deeply, trying to balance what is special and sacred and that we love without putting anybody in danger, without being irresponsible yeah. or gross, without trying to waste some of what the pandemic brought us, which is fresh insight into how we can live more safely and protect those who are most vulnerable yeah. all the time. Yeah. Um, so... I don't know exactly how that'll work or where we'll go with it or when we'll change. Just just know that we're we're living that. These right are the now. things we're weighing. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of thoughtful people are yeah. are working on it. Absolutely. So wherever then you know, whatever form communion takes then on Sunday and in the months to come, uh, bear with us, even if it's not what you would choose. It's um, also in many ways not what we would choose. Yep. So We'll figure it out together. Yep. Anything else for the common good? No, everybody just have a great Labor Day uh, weekend. I hope that you get the privilege of not having to labor Mm. Um, and uh, the ability to kind of just be with family, be with yourself and breathe for a few minutes. Don't forget, um, as I am reminded each Labor Day, don't forget that what we understand to be quote unquote, the normal structures around work and the boundaries of this were hard won yeah. that people fought and died yeah. um, for the opportunity in many different senses, yeah. for the opportunity for us to be able to um, have life structured the way that we do. Yeah. Um, and don't take it, don't take that for, don't take it for granted. I, I, I've been reading all of these. So, okay. Now I guess I do have something else to say. See. I've been reading all of these articles online uh, recently about this epidemic that they're calling quiet quitting, mm-hmm. which is just a terrible misnomer. I mm-hmm. think it does not, but it's people actually putting up boundaries around their work and private lives mm. and saying, I'm not going to come in every weekend just because the boss asked me or I'm not going to take my work home with me and do it when my kid is playing soccer and I should be paying attention to that and isn't that beautiful (laughs) that's Mm. all and we need to be a little more mindful of those sorts of things too yeah well, this I'm going to stop there because that could launch into a whole discussion about the nature of labor and yeah. the nature of work and many an opportunity. But as it is, I think we've preached enough Yeah. for now. Thank you all so much for spending this time with us. It's, we do hope you enjoy this gorgeous day whenever you this reaches you, this gorgeous weekend. And we will see you soon. Yep. Bye, everybody. Bye.